Hello everyone, my name is Arun and I want to welcome you to the latest episode of the Animal Whispers, where I use my patent pending animal translationator to get rich insight on animal gossip. Today we have three very special guests. Give it up for Busy Bee, Berry Bear, and Biddy Bunny. Okay, let's get started right away. My first question is for Berry Bear. Yes, sir! Okay, Barry, tell me, how do you communicate with your bear buddies? Do you talk? Do you roar? Do you have some sort of sign language? How typical of humans to assume that we talk. As a black bear, I tend to communicate my intentions through basic motions. If I sit down or appear undisturbed, my fellow bear friends would know that I'm comfortable. Whereas if I look alert and am noticeably on the lookout for something, they would know that something is up. Similarly, I have varying vocal reactions to signal certain emotions. For example, I could click my teeth to demonstrate playfulness to my cubs, or maybe I could roar to scare away anything I find dangerous. I just don't really understand how you can get what other bears are saying through such simple methods. You need to step out of your human shoes and think like a bear. Our means of communication reflects on the little things that we process out in the wild. We don't have to say, honey, I want a divorce like humans do. <laughs> a hand motion would do the trick. That sounds like a blessing, but I don't even know why I considered comparing us two. Hold it right there. Just because we don't have the same method of communication as you, doesn't mean we don't have the cognitive similarities. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. We're both mammals. Don't interrupt me. There was a study done that actually drew an unexpected line between depression in humans and hibernation in bears. But don't you guys choose to hibernate? Well, yes, but the neurobiological responses are comparable. For example, when bears hibernate, their cortisol levels increase, their neurotransmitter levels plummet, and they experience hypothyroidism, all things humans can experience with depression. To make matters even crazier, antidepressants tested on hibernating bears caused them to fall out of hibernation. Wow, I honestly would never have expected this kind of link. Of course you would never think that way. You humans are too busy driving your cars and watching TikTok. Charlie D'Amelio isn't the only thing that's important in this world. Anyway, on to the next question about the role of bees in their society. <laughs> okay, but Busy, tell me, what does a typical day look like for you? Well, I pollinate, and then I go back to the colony. I do that all day. My best friend Buzzy is usually on nectar duty, though. Oh, and of course we have our queen bee, Beopatra. <laughs> Whoa, do you have your own bee society thing going on? Yes, I actually heard about this really cool study that some humans did on my neighboring hive. This study specialization by bumblebees of a multitude timescales using RFID, and it was led by Avery L. Russell from the University of Arizona. Well, wait, I think I've heard about this. The gist is that scientists implanted a teeny tiny chip to monitor various bees live life, and they confirmed a lot of what you've said about specialization and different day-to-day -day tasks for different bees. Yep! An interesting detail from this study is that scientists found that there is a big difference in efficiency. Hard-working bees like myself often forage 40 times more than the lazy bees in the hive. Wow, that must be frustrating. But, but tell me, why do you think the bees have a tendency to specialize like that? I'm not totally sure. The paper hypothesizes that this could be because bees have a very poor memory and do not have the capacity to effectively perform different tasks at once. Okay, that makes sense. Yep, we're bee testing. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the last question about animal cruelty. Tell me, Biddy, as a rabbit, what are your opinions on animal testing? Rabbits are the second most used lab animals. In human eyes, rabbits are ideal because they reproduce quickly, have simple diets, and are very helpless. Humans do not give animal testing a second thought because they aren't testing their own species. 
but the Animal Welfare Act. Which is an extremely dated and kind of useless act. It doesn't even protect animals like mice and rats, which are the most common test subjects. The law also gives very vague guidelines for animal care and testing, and is barely enforced. For example, certain brands squirt cosmetics in rabbit eyes to see if it stings. Tests like this could be done through theoretical examination. When you put it like that, humans do do a terrible job of respecting other animals. Mm-hmm. Okay, Biddy, thank you for your feedback. It's very important for us to consider all sides of the situation. <coughs> I'm remiss to say it, but we've actually run out of time. Today we learned about Barry Bear and how animals communicate, Busy Bee and a Bee's role in society, and Biddy Bunny and his stance on animal rights. Please give a round of applause to our wonderful panelists, and please just remember to subscribe to our podcast, give us a good reading, and most importantly, keep on whispering, animal whispers. Welcome to FroSci Confessions, where we share anonymous confessions of FroSci students. Student 345 reports. We could have just watched The Late Show with Brian Greene instead of his three 14-hour lectures. Want more content like this? Want to hear the truths behind FroSci? Go to FroSci.ga for more information. How does language affect the way we think? How does that affect and differ between monolingual and bilingual individuals? This is your host, Fayang Pung, and in this episode, I will be interviewing two experts on language and its effect on our brain, Dr. Yoder and Dr. Perez from Columbia University, on how different language speakers perceive and interpret the world. Thank you so much for having us here today. I'd like to start us off with an interesting scientific study I was a part of called Grammar and Art. It was published by Stanford University's Department of Psychology. We analyzed the impact of a language's grammatical gender and how various nouns were personified in art. Nouns in this case being concepts like sin, victory, death, etc. Art pieces from an online database known as Art Store with the tags allegory or personification were used. Only pieces from artists native to Spain, France, Italy, and Germany were used because they all have grammatical gender and large sample sizes. We also narrowed it down to pieces where the noun being personified was clear and was a human being with a clear gender, which left us with about 765 pieces of art. What we found is that nouns are depicted in ways that aligned with their grammatical gender in 78% of cases. So if, for example, the word death was feminine in Spanish but masculine in German, then Spanish artists would most likely depict as a woman, whereas German artists would most likely depict as a man. The p-value for the study was calculated to be less than 0.00001. What that means is that the likelihood of the correlation being strictly due to chance is less than 0.001%. Evidently, language seems to shape the way we view the world. That's so interesting. Then I wonder how this difference in thinking affects bilingual speakers? That's a good question, Fayan. That's exactly what we tried to test in a study Dr. Yoder and I did together by testing a group of English and German monolinguals against a group of German-English bilingual speakers. So the grammar structure of English encourages present tense thinking, such as you know, walking, singing, and doing. So this tense doesn't exist in the German language. So most sentences emphasize the beginning and end of the action. In this study, we tried to test if German speakers are more goal-oriented than English speakers by showing them action images such as someone walking towards a door or walking along a road and having them categorize the images as ongoing action category or goal-oriented. Half the bilingual speakers received the test in English and the other half in German. We found that German speakers categorized events as goal-oriented significantly more than English speakers. Bilingual speakers also showed a significant difference depending on the language that they use during the test. 
That's so interesting. So bilingual speakers have both mindsets, but they use the one that of, of the language they're communicating in? Yes, but also not quite. In our second experiment, we did the same test for bilinguals, but added verbal interference to disrupt their thinking and see what happened. For example, the test would be given in English and the participant would have to listen to a series of numbers in English, then repeat it back. What we saw was that despite taking the test in English, bilingual speakers ended up categorizing the images the way a German speaker would and vice versa. It goes to show how powerful knowing another language can be. That's incredible. Even as a bilingual speaker myself, I never noticed something like this. So how does this really tangibly impact someone's actions? That's what I tried to find out in a later observational study. And this study is really a quite shocking one. So psychological researchers studied two kinds of racial biases in bilingual versus monolingual school children. School children. They studied explicit bias, which is bias that is expressed by choice, and implicit bias, which we may not be so consciously aware of, like trusting a person of one race over the other. These two kinds of biases were tested in children of preschool ages because that's when these biases begin to form in their young minds. Half of the kids were bilingual, speaking English and Chinese, and the other half were monolingual. What we found, sadly, was that kids who are monolingual, regardless of their native language, were actually statistically more prone to harbor implicit racial biases than kids who were bilingual. That is so shocking. School children, is, is this more a result of knowing more languages or... Yeah, so what this points to is not so much an effect of knowing two languages per se, but more of a connection between growing up in an environment of exposure to social and cultural diversity that bilingualism just tends to be a byproduct of. A child who grows up learning multiple languages learns to understand that the world is a diverse place, and as studies suggest, they come to be more accepting of this diversity. Is there anything that we can do? Yeah, so the easy answer might seem to be teaching kids more than just one language, but really the study emphasizes how it might just be enough to expose them to other languages and other cultures and customs. Thank you so much, Dr. Perez, and thank you, Dr. Yoder, for being here today. If you are interested in learning more about this topic, please check out the resources we've linked below, including the studies we talked about today. Thank you. And I shall rest my weary head in the silence of eternity in the peaceful arms of God. Robert Frost. In this podcast, we will read out loud 30 Robert Frost poems and analyze their importance in society. <laughs> Just kidding. This is actually a poem generated by a computer algorithm called the GPT-3. It detects how words are placed relative to one another, creating numeric representations for those words. It then manipulates these numeric representations and replicates writing styles that it has already seen. This algorithm can generate creative content solely through statistical representations of words. Creativity is often seen as a distinctly human process that is dynamic and fluid, different from computational tasks. But how then does the brain's creative process differ from this computer algorithm? In this episode of Science Heads, we'll discuss just that. To start off, we'll look at a study on how brain activity differs for those who are trained in creative writing versus novice writers. During this experiment, researchers conducted fMRI scans of creative and novice writers during activities such as brainstorming, copying, and reading. An fMRI is a machine that measures blood flow in the brain in order to detect which areas of the brain are active. They found that expert writers activated areas of the brain related to planning and skill automation, while non-experts activated areas of the brain were related to visual and perceptual information processing. Now for the surprising part. The study found that there are no significant differences in brain area activation when writers were copying something down versus when they were creative writing. So it seems that those who are trained to write have a process that they can automate, while non-experts have to rely more on abstract types of thinking. 
Surprisingly, those who are better at creative writing have a more pre-planned, almost computer-like approach when writing. So does this still count as true creativity? If trained creative writers have a formulaic approach to creative tasks, what even is creativity and how that, does that differ from, say, doing math equations? Can creativity even be objectively measured? So let's have Trevor dive deeper into the neuroscience behind creativity. Thanks, Evan. Let's now look into what differentiates more creative brains from less creative ones. Lucky for us, a group of scientists from the University of Auckland were just recently wondering the same thing. In this revolutionary 2019 study, scientists use an fMRI machine to monitor which parts of the brain are active at specific moments of creative thought. They tested to see whether or not variability of brain signal increases when the creative demands of a task are increased, or if changes happen often in different parts of the brain. Participants in the study performed tasks in which they had to think about future events while under measurement by fMRI. The authors of the study actually found that the evidence pointed to more creatively minded people having less widespread brain activity and more exact locational brain activity than those who are less able to complete the creative tasks when the creative demands of a future imagination task were increased. Thus, if you happen to be someone such as myself and you love making new things, we have seen through scientific research that your brain during those activities isn't actually firing off in all cylinders as the saying often goes. Instead, it knows exactly where and when it needs to send those signals, signals that eventually will help produce a masterpiece of creative thought. Karina, can you go more in depth on different types of creativity? So, while the article referenced by Trevor has shown that creativity exists in the activation of certain parts of the brain, we can even get more specific and look at how and where different types of creativity activate brain function, thanks to a study conducted by Italian researchers in 2015. In this study, the scientists compiled data from 24 different experiments that measured fMRI results for a total of over a thousand participants who completed creative tasks related to the visual, musical, or verbal categories. They then used this data to calculate an activation likelihood estimate for each task, which measures the probability that a certain area of the brain would be activated while engaging in different types of creativity. From these calculations, they were able to create a map of the brain that uses different colors to represent areas of the brain that were activated for each of the three different domains of creativity. For listeners who are interested, you can view this map under our reference materials. Now, not only does viewing this map prove that each type of creativity activates specific and different parts of the brain, but it brings us to a variety of interesting and more surprising conclusions. Most people are taught that the left hemisphere is more methodical, while the right controls more creative or artistic tasks, hence the terms right or left-brained. However, this study shows that visual and verbal creativity activate portions of the brain located in both hemispheres. And even more interesting than that, musical creativity activates portions of the brains almost entirely located in the left hemisphere. Creativity actually can result from parts of the brain that are thought to be analytical. Maybe this can help us understand why the GPT-3 is able to write poetry better than we can. To learn more, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or Patreon on the handle ScienceHeads. You can also check out our YouTube channel for updates on our upcoming podcasts and hit that bell icon to receive notifications about our recent posts. We'd like to thank our advertisers, Barstool Sports and Green Free Will Testers. Welcome back to another episode of Frosai Confessions. Student 455 confesses that she doesn't understand a single question asked during the Q&A sessions on Mondays. She feels stupid. Are you stupid too? Go to frosci.ga. Hi, welcome to our show, How Your Brain Works, where we bring in professionals to discuss various topics relating to your brain. On this episode, Your Brain on Music, we'll be discussing the effects of listening to music on your brain. 
Here with me today are two special guests, Brian and Melody. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Melody, a pianist at Carnegie Hall, where I've played for over 20 years. I'm Brian Synapse, and I'm a neuroscientist at Columbia. Together, they'll be giving you their perspectives on what happens to your brain when you listen to some tunes. To start, what types of music are there? I like to think of this question in terms of genres. To name a few, we have jazz, rock, pop, bluegrass, soul music, and my personal favorite, classical. I like to associate the genres that Melody listed with the chords and what defines these genres. Some important terms are consonant, which describes a group of notes that sound pleasant to the ears, and dissonant chords sound unpleasant. There are also major and minor chords, intervals and scales, which are associated with the pleasantness of the sound. These factors define the genres that Melody described, so they're really important to understand. In terms of music taste, I'm a picky listener, and I like music that gets me going in the morning. My favorite artist is definitely Ariana Grande. Nice. Here's a question that many of our fans have wanted to learn about. How are music and emotions connected? It really depends on the genre of music. Ballads are known to evoke sadness in people. On the other hand, most pop or hip hop music seems to get people excited with that adrenaline rush. From a classical musician's perspective, I think it comes down to the harmony of tempo, like adagio, allegro, volume, and melody. Melodies in the major scale tend to make people happy. Melodies in the minor scale tend to make people feel more sad, gloomy, or feel the tears arise. Yeah, so basically the reason why Ariana's music makes Brian feel more awake, active in the morning may be because her music is mostly in the C major key. Maybe that's why. Brian, what's your take on this? Well, I'm no music theorist, but research back in 2002 by Alton Muller, Sherman, and a few others looked into brain activation when someone listens to music. They established that music causes emotional changes in people, and those changes could be detected in the temporal lobe of the brain. What's the temporal lobe? Well, the temporal lobe is located in the bottom of our brains, in both the right and left hemispheres. It's responsible for various functions, including hearing, memory, and emotions. So back to the research. They found out that when people felt positive emotions while listening to music, their left temporal lobes were activated. When people felt negative emotions while listening to music, both temporal lobes were activated, though the right brain was activated to a greater degree. Gotcha. So what happens in those situations to the temporal lobe? In the 2002 study, scientists exposed subjects to music that was either consonant, dissonant, happy, or sad, in the same way that Melody described. The key takeaway here is that different kinds of music cause different parts of the brain to be activated, even within one specific lobe. I see. So music can provoke different emotional changes in people, and this is scientifically proven. How can we apply this in our lives or medicine? Great question. Music is used to treat anxiety in two different circumstances, general life and brain surgeries. I was actually involved in a study relating to anxiety a while back. Essentially, they asked us to spend set amounts of time listening to a specific type of music called binaural beats, which stimulate the brain. They were testing if music can be relaxing for the human brain. They found out that through machines, which measure brain activity and surveys on relaxation, those who listened to these beats for over 30 minutes a day for two weeks, including myself, found themselves more relaxed than those who didn't, and their brain showed that. And in brain surgery, a study in Taiwan five years ago found that patients exposed to music before and during brain surgery were far more relaxed than those who didn't, according to statistically significant data gathered from questionnaires and slower heart rate data. 
great to see so many fantastic applications. Lastly, would someone like to touch on the long-term effects of listening to music? I'll jump in here, albeit with my own experience. I've noticed that practicing music really helps my ability to focus. That is to say that practicing music, even just a few times a week, can be very therapeutic and allows me to focus closely on other things as well. And the science supports it. That is to say, studies have shown that people who practice an instrument then find that they have more of an ability to focus and more neuroplasticity in the long run. Wonderful. Thank you, Brian and Melody. It was great hearing from you and discussing the connections between music, emotions, and the brain, and its applications in medicine. Remember to tune in next time and follow How Your Brain Works on Spotify. And it's your favorite confessions team from ProSide Confessions. With us today is student 124, who wants to give a special shout out to her favorite lecture tool, two times speed. Are you feeling speedy? Go to froside.ga. Actually, I don't give a flying mew on how you're feeling. Go to froside.ga. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Mental Health America, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping those with mental illnesses. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Fernandez. And I'm Dr. Yoon. And for this series, we are offering free counseling to anyone stuck at home who is in need of counseling during the pandemic. If you are struggling emotionally with something but are not sure if you are struggling with a mental illness, feel free to talk to us. Hello, could you tell me your name, please? Hi, I'm Kevin. Hi, Kevin. It's great to have you. What are you struggling with? I think I might be struggling with PTSD, but I'm not sure. Well, PTSD is a psychiatric disorder that may occur in people who've experienced or witnessed a traumatic event. Have you experienced anything traumatic recently? Yes, but I'm not sure if I'm a PTSD patient because... Because you're not a veteran? That's right. PTSD has also been known as combat fatigue since World War II, but PTSD can happen to anyone, not just vets. According to the American Psychiatric Association, PTSD affects approximately 3.5% of U.S. adults every year, and 1 in 11 people will be diagnosed with PTSD in their lifetime. It's more common than people think. Still, many people can experience similar symptoms to PTSD, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily have it. Can you tell us some of the symptoms you've been experiencing? Well, I, I sometimes have random flashbacks. I can't control it. Sometimes... I have memories of me driving the car, and anyways, I'm having these awful memories. So it seems like you were in a car accident? Yeah, and after that accident, I started to avoid drinking because of, you know, the accident. I used to love drinking with my buddies, but I can't do that anymore. Intrusive thoughts and avoiding objects that remind you of the traumatic event are symptoms of PTSD. Can you describe how you're feeling these days? Um, nothing really makes me happy these days. I have been having trouble concentrating and sleeping. And I feel like I'm much more easily startled by sound nowadays. What you're feeling is completely normal for a PTSD patient. Being unable to experience positive emotions is a common symptom of PTSD. Is there anything else you want to tell us? How long have you been experiencing these symptoms? About two months, actually. Symptoms have to last at least one month for a person to be diagnosed with PTSD, so you could very well have it. Uh, what's really going on in my head? Like, how is PTSD affecting my brain? I get into these moods all the time, and 
my mind is definitely not the same as before. Yes, unfortunately, PTSD can have a profound effect on how your brain functions. That's right. One article by J. Douglas Bremner from Emory University used MRIs in order to determine the effects of PTSD on the brain. This study found that participants who suffered from PTSD, both from combat and childhood abuse, had smaller hippocampal volume compared with participants who didn't suffer from PTSD. The hippocampus is the part of your brain that is responsible for some types of memory formation. Those changes in the brain can also affect cognitive function. In one study by Jennifer J. Vasterling et al., researchers conducted cognitive experiments on two groups of Vietnam veterans, one whose participants had been diagnosed with PTSD and one whose participants had not. The researchers found that one, the group with PTSD performed significantly worse on tests assessing sustained attention, working memory, initial registration of verbal information, and native intelligence compared with the control group. That's part of the reason why this disorder is so important to understand. It can have a profound impact on how you feel and how you function. Oh, okay. Um, I wanted to ask, is there a medicine that can help me get rid of these symptoms? Like, can I get one from CVS? Antidepressants such as SSRIs are used to treat the core symptoms of PTSD, but it has to be prescribed by a physician. But trauma-focused psychotherapy is the best treatment for PTSD. Medication can help relieve the symptoms, but they can't make the symptoms go away. That can only be done in therapy. Psychotherapies have different purposes. One kind of psychotherapy is called prolonged exposure. It teaches you to gradually approach trauma-related memories and feelings. It can help decrease the symptoms of PTSD patients by confronting these memories. I hope we've clarified some questions you've had. Yes, uh, this has been helpful. Thank you so much. All right, see you. Make sure to check us out on our MySpace and Google+. Also, don't forget to buy our new merch, especially our hats. All proceeds will go to Mental Health America. See you next time. Want to control your dreams? Stay tuned for the next segment to experience your favorite movies and shows in real time. Brought to you by the Calm app. Download today in the App Store. For quality ASMR, check out prosci.ga. This program is brought to you by Juicy Juice, the official beverage of the immortal Naked Mole Rat Olympics and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. In the multiverse, this cyberpunk future world is controlled by the distant and all-powerful immortal Naked Mole Rats. After watching a bootleg movie from the planet Earth called Inception, the rulers now believe their rule is threatened by the existence of powerful, abnormal, lucid dreamers. The dream investigators have taken an infamous lucid dreamer into custody to interrogate her in hopes of finding out more about her mysterious and very dangerous behavior, the superpower of lucidity. Name is Detective Johnny, and this here is my partner, Polly. Now, miss, if you cooperate, we'll let you live. Sure, we will. I have nothing to hide. Ask away. Well, according to our detailed research, Dr. Christopher Nolan clearly shows that you can control people through their dreams. That's science fiction. I lucid dream, which is very different and completely normal. Nonsense. Stop with this outrageous- Wait, let her speak. What do you mean? You know what, Johnny? I don't even know what lucid dreaming is. Well, I suppose that's important. Tell us, Miss Lucid. Well, on the most basic level, lucidity is just the awareness that I'm dreaming, and oftentimes that is as much control as people have. 
That's just sleep paralysis, you idiot. Actually, no. Sleep paralysis is a state in which a person is aware, but it only occurs when a person wakes up or falls asleep. They can't move or talk at all during that. Sounds sketch, but okay. Signs of sleep paralysis include stuff like bad sleep and anxiety, while us lucid dreamers experience what we do because of vivid sensory imagery. Okay, so sleep paralysis and lucid dreaming are just two completely different experiences. They can be related sometimes. Lucid dreaming can actually be connected to sleep paralysis experiences with particularly intense hallucinations, but for the most part, yes, they're completely different. Okay, so sleep paralysis is not lucid dreaming, and lucid dreaming is the awareness that you are dreaming while sleeping. Exactly. You finally understand something. Congrats. Wait, 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 wait. So when I have a nightmare and I realize that I'm having one, that's lucidity? Hold on, detective, you have nightmares? No, no, no. Yes, actually, you're right, detective. Once I realize that I'm dreaming, I can then control what I do in my dreams and create situations in my head. It's similar to daydreaming in this way. Okay, miss, we get it, we get it. You can't dream hop like they do in that Academy Award-winning masterpiece, Inception. Yeah, that movie really put out a bad name for us lucid dreamers. Detectives, lucid dreaming is completely natural because it all occurs in the brain. How? Well, I've done my own research, and according to an actual study called The Metacognitive Mechanisms Underlying Dreaming by Dr. Filovich, our frontal lobe and hippocampus are activated during lucidity. The frontal what? And the hippopotamus who? The frontal lobe, as in the part of our brain where we create thoughts, and the hippocampus, as in where our memory is stored. The more intense of a lucid dream, the more activated these regions are. Explain this activation. Now! Of course, detective. Scientists use an fMRI, which uses blood oxygenation levels as a proxy for brain activity. So, if there's more oxygenated blood in the frontal lobe, they know that this region is activated. I can show you a picture if you want. That'd be great. Enough with the chit-chat. Miss, if lucid dreaming is so normal and natural as you state, why can't more people lucid dream? Your kind is obviously still a threat to the natural order of things. Well, one specific group of people is more likely to lucid dream than others. It's younger people. The development of intellectual capability actually increases the frequency of lucidity. How do we know that you're even telling the truth? How am I supposed to know? It's just my brain. Not a good enough answer, miss. Come on, back to the cell. Wait, wait. I'll try to explain as best as I can, but you have to let me go. Okay, deal. Now tell us how you do it. Well, I've been able to control my dreams since I was just a little girl. You have to learn how to identify dream signs. Basically, you try to notice commonalities in your dreams. For example, detective, if you learn to recognize the consistency in your nightmares, you can then control them. Wait, I can control my nightmares? Yeah, definitely. You could do reality checks in your dreams, like counting your fingers or telling yourself, I'm dreaming. And if you fall asleep to a movie soundtrack, you can actually place yourself in that movie. Now, can I please go? <laughs> no. Come on, that's not fair. Quiet, Miss Lucid. Maybe you can escape in your dreams. And Layla opened her eyes, awake. You can donate to your local Actors Guild by navigating in your web browser to froci.ga. That's froci.ga.